Well, we began our uh, Easter journey last Sunday by hearing that uh, challenging word from St. Paul to the Christians in Colossae, when Paul says, if, if you've been raised with Christ, then seek the things that are above. Or Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of it, if you've been raised with Christ, then act like it. It's a high challenge for all of us. It's where the risen Christ meets us and calls us to the life that he has for us. It says that to meet the risen Christ the way Mary met him outside the tomb is to receive an invitation. It is the invitation to rise up from the mundane, ordinary patterns of human existence and rise into the new life of the resurrection that Christ has for us. And that's what we're going to be thinking about over the weeks that are out ahead leading toward Pentecost. We'll be thinking about what this resurrection life actually looks like and how we can get in on it and be a part of it. From, uh, from the very first time that we began with a worship team planning this uh, series, I've had some words from uh, the poet Emily Dickinson sort of rattling around in my brain. Here, here they are. We never know how high we are till we are called to rise. And then, if we are true to plan, our natures touch the skies. She uh, captured the word that I want to plant in our hearts as we enter into this series because she got it right. We never realize how high we can rise. We, we never know all that we are capable of being and doing until somewhere, sometime, somehow, someone along the way calls us to live into all that God placed within us to discover the new life that God has for us. We never know how high we are till we are called to rise. And then, if we are true to plan, our natures touch the skies. You, um, you can hear that kind of calling in this opening to the letter to Rome that we just heard read for us. Paul begins by identifying himself. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle. Called to something that Paul never in his wildest imagination would have dreamed or anticipated. Called to a life that he never expected. Called to a life that was beyond all of his preparation. Called to proclaim the gospel of his son, who descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. That's, that's who Paul was called to be. And I suspect that if the folks in Rome were a lot like the folks in Tampa, which I think they were, I suspect there were a lot of folks in the congregation read those words and they said, 
Well, cheers for Paul. That's great, Paul. What great. You got a great calling there, Paul. Sounds great. Yeah, that's, that's just fine. But my guess is that the folks in Rome, like the folks in Tampa, were just more than a little bit surprised when they saw the way Paul addressed them. Paul said, to God's beloved in Rome, called to be saints. Called to be saints. And if they were like us and we were like them, I suspect our first reaction is, really? Saints, okay. That's a little bit above the pay grade that I was anticipating. Called to be saints. I mean, you've heard, haven't you heard people say, well, you know, I'm no saint. And I, I'll bet you've said the same thing. I'll, I'll bet all of us have demonstrated it. <laughs> we're, we're, we're not saints. I mean, that just sounds a little bit sky high to us, called to be saints. And yet, and yet, somewhere deep inside our own souls, isn't there something within us that when we hear a word like that says, wow, that's not where I am yet, but it wouldn't be a bad place to be. Something within us that says, maybe, maybe that is the life to which I've been called. Something that instinctively knows that we are called to reach higher, to stretch farther, to love deeper, to give ourselves more fully to something bigger, larger, beyond anything we've anticipated or known before, called, called to be saints. Now, if, um, if poetry by Emily Dickinson is just a little bit obscure to you, most of her stuff is pretty obscure to me, maybe, uh, and I know it's a great risk to have two poems in the same sermon, but maybe you can, maybe you can get this one. It's by a Texas farmer named Kenneth Kaufman. He observed some ducks in his farmyard, and, and then he thought about his own life, and he wrote, I think my soul is an old tame duck dabbling around in the barnyard muck, fat and lazy with useless wings. But sometimes when the north wind sings and the wild birds hurtle overhead, it remembers something lost and dead and cocks a wary, bewildered eye and makes a feeble attempt to fly. It's, scarce, it's, it's, it's largely content with the state it's in, but it isn't the duck it might have been. And that's who we are. Barnyard ducks who instinctively know that we were meant to fly, to rise to something larger than the life that we have known called by Christ to arise. Now, in the letter to the Ephesians, Paul gave an even bolder description of this new life of the resurrection. 
when he wrote, you were dead. You were dead through your trespasses and sins in which you once lived. But God, who is rich in mercy, out of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Wow. Talk about being called to rise. You don't get any higher than that. Uh, John Wesley gave the early Methodists a unique way of talking about this resurrection life and about the way we live into it. The phrase that Wesley used was Christian perfection. He talked about being made perfect in love. Now, we've got to get clear, he was not talking about sort of flawless perfection. I mean, he was not talking about Tiger Woods hitting the perfect golf shot. He was not talking about your kid getting a perfect score on the SATs. He, he meant the word perfect in the sense of whole or complete, wholeness of life. He drew it out of the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus said, that his followers were called to be perfect in love even as their heavenly father is perfect, complete, whole in love. He was talking about the whole of life being centered around loving God and loving others. Christian perfection for Wesley was the end toward which our discipleship journey is always moving. It's the goal of a life that is continually moving more deeply into loving God and loving others. He called it Christian perfection. I got the best definition that I know of this from a, uh, a farm boy up in the rural community I served up in North Georgia, North Georgia, North Florida. He was coming up the steps to church one Sunday morning. I said, hey, Roger, how are you, how are you doing today? He looked me square in the eye, quick as a whip. He said, well, preacher, I usually know I'm in trouble when somebody starts out like that. But he said, well, preacher, I'm not the man I used to be, and I'm not yet the man I'd like to be, but I'm more the man God wants me to be than I've ever been before. You know, that was like 35 years ago. I have yet to hear a better definition of Christian perfection. Being made perfect in love means that we know we're not the people we used to be, and we're not yet the people we'd really like to be, but by God's grace, we're becoming more of the people God wants us to be than we've ever been before. That's, that's the journey of discipleship. That's being made perfect in love. But we better tell the truth about it. Christian perfection is not easy. And the journey toward being made perfect is not a cakewalk. Any of us who have tried it know living, living this new life in Christ is impossible. We can't get it by ourselves. 
And the good news is, we don't have to. It is the work of God's Spirit within us as we practice those spiritual disciplines that enable God's Spirit to do God's own work in us. A little bit later in this Ephesian passage, Paul will say, for we are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works. And in this passage to the Romans, Paul says, God, God's grace has enabled us to be what we are. In these verses, Paul plants two words that open the way to the movement toward Christian perfection. One is the word love. Paul identifies the people in Rome as God's beloved. He writes to the Ephesians, God who is rich in mercy out of the great love with which he has loved us, made us alive in Christ. The key word for us is love. Now, other, other brothers and sisters in Christ on other branches of the Christian tree will center their understanding of the Christian life in other aspects of God's self-revelation in Scripture. But for folks in the Methodist tradition, the center point is always this amazing love of God. Got to be clear, it's not love the way the rest of the world talks about love. It's not, you know, love your puppies, love your country, love the gators or seminoles or bucks or rays. It, now, it's a very unique one and only kind of love. It is nothing less than the love revealed in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It is the love of God revealed at the cross. It's what Charles Wesley taught us to sing, love divine, all love's excelling joy of heaven to earth come down. At the center of this journey is the awareness that we have been extravagantly, persistently, relentlessly loved by God. And the second word he uses is grace. Three times in that one verse, he uses the word grace. By grace you have been saved, so that in the ages to come he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of your work, so that no one can boast. It is all a journey of grace. And as we talk about it around here, our own sort of homegrown definition of grace is that grace is the undeserved, unearned, unrepayable gift of the God who loves us enough to meet us where we are, but loves us too much to leave us there. 
It is the love of God that is at work within us to transform each of our lives into a unique expression of the love of God in Jesus Christ so that we become a part of God's loving transformation of this world. That's grace. From beginning to end. The journey of discipleship, the pilgrimage toward perfection is all a work of love and grace in our lives. And, and when we see it, when we see it in the life of another human being, it's a little bit like that barnyard duck seeing a wild bird in the sky and something within us would like to fly. Yesterday here, uh, we celebrated the life of Bishop J. Lloyd Knox. Some of you knew Lloyd. Uh, Lloyd was deeply enmeshed in the life and history of this church. It was here at Hyde Park that uh, as a kid growing up in the neighborhood in an unchurched family, he made his way here to join the Boy Scouts. But it was here that he found Christ, or rather that Christ found Lloyd. And it was here in a youth Sunday school class. He heard a missionary talk about what God was doing in other parts of the world, and it planted within him a sense of God's calling for his own life. It was from here that he went into the ministry, became a missionary to Cuba, the last American Methodist to leave when, after Castro had come to power, staying with the people as long as he could. Then a missionary to South America, then leading the Spanish ministry in South Florida. It was from here, that, back to here, that he returned at a very critical moment in the history of this congregation to be the pastor of this church. And it was from here that we, he went on and was elected a bishop of the United Methodist Church, ultimately becoming the president of the General Board of Global Ministries, traveling all over the world to proclaim the good news of God's Son, in, of God's Son, Jesus Christ. And everybody who knew Lloyd would have a different experience of him, but one thing that they would all have in common, they would know. They would know that by the way Lloyd lived his life, everything he did was grounded in the love and the grace of God revealed in Jesus. Just a kid growing up three blocks from here on the street in Tampa. Who would have ever guessed? Except to say that it confirms we never know how high we rise. We never know how high we are till we are called to rise. And then, if we are true to plan, our natures touch the skies. So why, why on earth would we ever settle for anything less than that? Let's pray together. O risen Christ,